This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no influence by intelligence agencies. This is Encounter 305, The Robertson Panel. This week we're going to be looking at one of the earliest examples, documented examples anyway, of the U.S. intelligence establishment taking an active interest in the flying saucer scene. We've seen some examples of the FBI getting involved. We've talked about the Air Force getting involved uh, from the military side of things. But the Robertson panel, as it would become known, is something a little bit different and has some long-reaching consequences that are fairly significant for the study of flying saucer uh, culture over the last 60 or 70 years. So here we go with the Robertson panel. Increased flying saucer sightings, especially by 1952, led to increased government and scrutiny of the flying saucer mystery. The summer of 1952 overwhelmed Project Blue Book with sightings from all over the country, including a so-called saucer flyover of Washington, D.C., which radar operators were powerless to explain. As mysterious lights flashed in the night over the Pentagon, White House, and Capitol Hill, the Air Force scrambled fighters to intercept. By the time the planes were airborne, the lights had disappeared from the skies and the radar screens. This incident convinced many in the government that whatever was going on was vital to determine whether or not there existed a threat to national security. By early 1953, one of the newest governmental creations of the Cold War would try its hand at understanding the situation. From January 14th to the 17th, 1953, the Central Intelligence Agency convened the Scientific Panel on Unidentified Flying Objects, chaired by physicist E.P. Robertson of Caltech. The most complete version of the proceedings of their meetings is linked in the show notes, but here are some highlights. One of the things the panel looked at was the Air Force and Blue Book procedure for taking reports and investigating them and the trouble that arose from that system. It was the panel's opinion that some of the Air Force concern over UFOs, notwithstanding Air Defense Command anxiety over fast radar tracks, was probably caused by public pressure. The result today is that the Air Force has instituted a fine channel for receiving reports of nearly anything anyone sees in the sky and fails to understand. This has been particularly encouraged in popular articles on this and other subjects, such as space travel and science fiction. The result is the mass receipt of low-grade reports which tend to overload channels of communication with material quite irrelevant to hostile objects that might someday appear. The panel agreed generally that this mass of poor quality reports containing little, if any, scientific data was of no value. Quite the opposite. It was possibly dangerous in having a military service foster public concern in, quote, nocturnal meandering lights. The implication being, since the interested agency was the military, that these objects were, or might be, potential direct threats to national security. Accordingly, the need for de-emphasization made itself apparent. It was also interesting to me that the panel seemed to have a fairly open mind about the possibility of extraterrestrial life. It was interesting to note that none of the members of the panel were loath to accept that the Earth might be visited by extraterrestrial intelligent beings of some sort someday. 
What they did not find was any evidence that related the objects sighted to space travelers. Terrestrial explanations of many sightings were suggested in some cases, and in others, the time of the sighting was so short as to cause suspicion of visual impressions. It was noted that extraterrestrial artifacts, if they did exist, are no cause for alarm. Rather, they are in the realm of natural phenomenon, subject to scientific study, just as cosmic rays were at the time of their discovery 20 to 30 years ago. This was an attitude in which Dr. Robertson did not concur, as he felt that such artifacts would be of immediate and great concern not only to the U.S., but to all countries. Nothing like a common threat to unite peoples. So one of the problems cited by the panel here is, is a lack of documentation accompanying many sightings and a lack of evidence. Basically, unexplained does not actually mean unexplainable. Not necessarily, anyway. The effort required to exhaustively investigate everything was daunting, to say the least. The panel noted that the cost in technical manpower effort required to follow up and explain every one of the thousand or more reports received through channels each year could not be justified. It was felt that there will always be sightings for which complete data is lacking that can only be explained with disproportionate effort and with a long time delay, if at all. The long delay in explaining a sighting tends to eliminate any intelligence value. The education or training program should have as a major purpose the elimination of popular feeling that every sighting, no matter how poor the data, must be explained in detail. Attention should be directed to the requirement among scientists that a new phenomenon to be accepted must be completely and convincingly documented. In other words, the burden of proof is on the cider, not the explainer. But what about the main point of the panel, that assessing the dangers of flying saucers? The panel felt that while there was no direct danger, that is, these lights in the sky were not going to you know, blow up the White House Independence Day style or anything, there were related dangers that might exist. These dangers included three key things. First is, these are the words from the report, misidentification of actual enemy artifacts by defense personnel. Oh, what's that, Jimmy? Well, Phil, I think it's one of those flying saucers, so probably nothing. Oh, no, it's a ballistic missile coming at you. That, that sort of thing. Um, the second one is, uh, in the words of the report, an overloading of emergency reporting channels with false information. Yeah, that sort of makes sense. And third, quote, subjectivity of public to mass hysteria and greater vulnerability to possible enemy psychological warfare. So that third one is, is one of the most interesting to me because the danger of UFOs is not the UFOs themselves, in a way, the danger is that this UFO thing might be used as a propaganda weapon for some other purpose. That's an interesting angle that the CIA chose to pursue a little bit, uh, a little bit more, uh, and and that uh, leads to the education program portion of the Robertson panel report. And this is one of the most talked about parts of the report. In fact, when people mention the Robertson panel report in a lot of UFO books, this education program section is, is usually what gets nearly all the attention. The panel's concept of a broad educational program integrating efforts of all concerned agencies was that it should have two major aims, training and debunking. 
The training aim would result in proper recognition of unusually illuminated objects such as balloons or aircraft reflections, as well as natural phenomena, meteors, fireballs, mirages, noctilucent clouds. The debunking aim would result in reduction in public interest in flying saucers, which today evokes a strong psychological reaction. This education could be accomplished by mass media such as television, motion pictures, and popular articles. Basis of such education would be actual case histories, which had been puzzling at first, but later explained. As in the case of conjuring tricks, there is much less stimulation if the secret is known. Such a program should tend to reduce the current gullibility of the public, and consequently their susceptibility to clever hostile propaganda. The panel noted that the general absence of Russian propaganda based on a subject with so many obvious possibilities for exploitation might indicate a possible Russian official policy. Members of the panel had various suggestions related to the planning of such an educational program. It was strongly felt that psychologists familiar with mass psychology should advise on the nature and extent of the program. The teaching techniques used by this agency for aircraft identifications during the past war was cited as an example of a similar educational task. The Jam Handy Company, which made World War II training films, was also suggested, as was Walt Disney animated cartoons. Dr. Hynek suggested that the amateur astronomers in the U.S. might be a potential source of enthusiastic talent to spread the gospel. It was believed that business clubs, high schools, colleges, and television stations would all be pleased to cooperate in the showing of documentary-type motion pictures if prepared in an interesting manner. The use of true cases, showing first the mystery and then the explanation, would be forceful. The education part of this is a little bit chilling, really, isn't it? Now, training Air Force officials and Air Force personnel to adequately explain or adequately identify natural phenomenon that might otherwise be confused for flying saucers, that makes sense. But the debunking aspect, the idea of um, you know, these guys sitting around and saying, well, why don't we just you know hire Jam Handy to make some educational shorts or Walt Disney to make a cartoon and get people to stop talking about this? It sounds you know sort of creepily chilling now. In 1952, given the political climate, the social climate of the United States, maybe not so much. After all, we just seven years before had finished up the Second World War, which involved a great deal of mass media used to manipulate public opinion about the war, about politicians, about America in general. And then we get into the Cold War, where you have mass media manipulation from a variety of sources to sort of develop American citizens' sense of devotion, not just to the country, but to sort of abstract concepts of capitalism as well. So it seems a bit shocking now to read this, but in 1952, one might sort of think this was sort of standard operating procedure. Well, we need to get the public to think this way, you know, let's get some film strips and show them to the kids and kids will talk to their parents and everything will be fine. And pretty soon we'll make the whole flying saucer thing go away. The panel's conclusions presented um, on January 17th were concise, but had some significant stuff in them. 
Pursuant to the request of the Assistant Director for Scientific Intelligence, the undersigned panel of scientific consultants has met to evaluate any possible threat to national security posed by unidentified flying objects or flying saucers and to make recommendations thereon. The panel has received the evidence as presented by cognizant intelligence agencies, primarily the Air Technical Intelligence Center, and has reviewed a selection of the best documented incidents. As a result of its considerations, the panel concludes that the evidence presented on unidentified flying objects shows no indication that these phenomena constitute a direct physical threat to national security. We firmly believe there is no residuum of cases which indicates phenomena which are attributable to foreign artifacts capable of hostile acts, and that there is no evidence that the phenomena indicates a need for revision of current scientific concepts. The panel further concludes that the continued emphasis on the reporting of these phenomena does, in these parlous times, result in a threat to the orderly functioning of the protective organs of the body politic. We cite as examples the clogging of channels of communication by irrelevant reports, the danger of being led by continued false alarms to ignore real indications of hostile action, and the cultivation of a morbid national psychology in which skillful hostile propaganda could induce hysterical behavior and harmful distrust of duly constituted authority. In order to most effectively strengthen the national facilities for the timely recognition and the appropriate handling of true indications of hostile action, and to minimize the concomitant dangers alluded to above, the panel recommends A that the national security agencies take immediate steps to strip unidentified flying objects of the special status they have been given and the aura of mystery they have unfortunately acquired. B, that the national security agencies institute policies on intelligence, training, and public education designed to prepare the material defenses and the morale of the country to recognize most promptly and to react most effectively to true indications of hostile intent or action. We suggest that these aims may be achieved by an integrated program designed to reassure the public of the total lack of evidence of inimical forces behind the phenomenon, to train personnel to recognize and reject false indications quickly and effectively, and to strengthen regular channels for the evaluation of, and prompt reaction to, true indications of hostile measures. In a January 20th letter to H. Marshall Chadwell, Assistant Director of the CIA's Office of Scientific Intelligence, Robertson quipped, quote, perhaps that'll take care of the Fortians for a while, end quote. The existence of the Robertson panel and its findings, though initially classified and not reported to the public, would be revealed, sort of, a few years later. The Air Force requested that the report's conclusions be made public in an undated, as far as I can tell, letter from CIA Deputy Assistant Director Philip Strong to panel member Thornton Page, we get a little bit of insight into the thinking that went into what would be declassified. I've discussed this matter with Dr. Robertson, who agrees that the conclusion contained in paragraph 2 and the recommendation contained in paragraph 4a can be declassified. But he, as well as this agency, will not agree to a declassification of the conclusion in paragraph 3 or the recommendation in paragraph 4b. It is our feeling that the association of the panel with this agency should not be disclosed, that paragraph 1 should be rewritten, and that the final six lines of paragraph 4 can remain as written. Here's a sample of the sanitized version of the conclusions. 
the undersigned panel of scientific consultants has met at the request of the government to evaluate any possible threat to national security posed by unidentified flying objects or flying saucers and to make recommendations. The panel has received this evidence as presented by cognizant government agencies, primarily the United States Air Force, and has reviewed a selection of the best documented incidents. So a particular branch of the Central Intelligence Agency becomes the government. The Air Technical Intelligence Center becomes the U.S. Air Force. So that's one of the changes, the introduction that, that sort of removes the CIA from the picture, which, which makes sense. If I was the CIA, I would not want to have my name out there doing things as well. Other specific things that were eliminated include the section that um, that says national security agencies should institute policies on intelligence training and public education, that uh, we training personnel to reject false indications and to strengthen regular channels, really sort of cleans things up. They eliminate a lot of the education stuff. They don't talk about, you know, having to, to cleanse the public of any sort of, you know, knowledge of flying saucers and that, that the flying saucers debate is damaging to the body politic. The, the strongest the language gets in the, in the sanitized version of the report is to strip UFOs f- from the special value they've been given and the aura of mystery they've unfortunately acquired. The sanitized report conclusions don't say, and we're going to do, use the Disney Corporation to do it. So it's, it's a little more... I don't want to say cuddly, but it's it's a little more cuddly. So these sanitized findings and, and knowledge of this panel itself were probably first noted in a book called The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, a 1956 book by Edward Ruppelt, who headed Project Blue Book in its earliest years. He describes the panel this way. By early January 1953, the scientists who were to be members of our panel of experts had been contacted and had agreed to sit in judgment of the UFO. In turn, we agreed to give them every detail about the UFOs. We had our best reports for them to read, and we were going to show them the two movies that that some intelligence officers considered as the positive proof. Because of military regulations, the names of the panel members, like the names of so many other people associated with the UFO story, cannot be revealed. No mention of the CIA, no names given. I'm a dork. Yeah, but it's kind of fun to see the CIA memos about what can be talked about and not talked about, and then to see concrete examples of how those determinations play out in a book that is released to the general public. I just think that's really cool. So the Robertson panel, in all, was was significant for two reasons. First, it helped establish that the government saw flying saucers as a threat, not because they were invading craft from outer space, but because the public's perception of them could derail government efforts to convince Americans that, for example, the Soviet Union was the greatest threat imaginable. Remember Dr. Uh, Robertson's comment that the, uh, that, the, um, that the report cited, that you know, this could bring everybody together. All nations, all peoples would come together because of this external threat. Second, and more far-reaching, was the effect that the full Robertson panel findings had on flying saucer believers when its existence was eventually released to the public. Uh, Some bits came out in the 70s, other bits are still coming out. To many saucer believers, the report confirmed that the government had much stronger interest in the topic than it ever indicated. And that suspicion persists through today, as recent news indicates. 
Knowledge of the scrutiny given to the question of flying saucers by the military and intelligence organs of the U.S. government fueled believers' desire for governmental disclosure of any UFO information they might have had and reinforced the notion that the government was being unduly secretive about the topic. Indeed, bits and pieces of the panel's findings were still being declassified in the early 2000s, and some things are still redacted. Knowledge of the education program, in particular, has fueled a re-examination of saucer-related media from the time, media that may have been used as a vehicle for the demystification of the subject so desired by the panel. Robbie Graham's 2015 book, Silver Screen Saucers, Sorting Fact from Fiction, sorry, Sorting Fact from Fantasy, in Hollywood's UFO movies, discusses the influence of the panel's findings. Graham explains, for example, that a 19, even as late as 1966, a, a CBS sort of anti-UFO documentary hosted by Walter Cronkite was um, advised by one of the members of the Robertson panel, Dr. Thornton Page. And Page made a reference to, to somebody that, that he tried to push the program makers into the in, in the direction desired by the Robertson panel. So 13 years later, it's still having an influence. And we have documentation that people involved did carry out, uh, did carry out this goal. It would be naive of us to think that government influence of the media was limited to flying saucers. Shows like Dragnet, for example, serve as evidence that the federal government is fully willing to use mass media to promote its agenda, and that the mass media is at least sometimes willing to serve as the handmaiden of propaganda. I don't think that's a paranoid point of view. I think it's a realistic one, as long as we don't get carried away, and assume everything is some sort of secret propaganda. Honestly, only like 98% of stuff is secret propaganda. Okay, I'm the only non-propaganda thing you will hear this week. I absolutely promise you. The work of the Robertson panel is a little bit of information that we should keep in our heads as we make our way through our own saucer lives. Thanks for listening this week. Uh, This week I've got some recommended books for you, the ones I mentioned, and that's Robbie Graham's Silver Screen Saucers and Captain Ruppelt's book, the report on unidentified flying objects. There are links to uh, purchase both of these on Amazon. And about Ruppelt's book, if you want a copy, there is a recently released paperback reissue of it. Don't get that because, at least on Amazon when I was looking, you can get the um, the hardcover, the original 1956 hardcover, for like four bucks. Um, I, I paid $3.98 for mine at the Half Price Books in Greenwood, Indiana, uh, probably 20 years ago. So it's you know it's out there in uh, in standard form, and and Robbie's book is available um, for for very reasonable prices on Amazon. And I think there's a Kindle version as well. So check that out. In our next encounter, we'll be looking at uh, one of the 1950s contactees that I don't think gets enough exposure, uh, and that is a guy named. George, shockingly. Uh, In this case, George Hunt Williamson. You can follow along with us at SaucerLife.com and on Twitter and Instagram at SaucerLife. We'd love your feedback, so get in touch. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. The Saucer Life is written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the CIA is watching you.